Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. Today is Thursday, February 8th, 2018. I'm your host, Charlie Matessian, sitting in for Scott Bland, and you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. This week, we're talking stock market chaos, why the Dow fell drastically and what it means for the larger economic and political picture. Then we'll pivot to President Trump's military parade request. Come on, you know we had to. We'll also have defense reporter Connor O'Brien on to discuss the Pentagon's reaction to the parade request, and we'll sift through the defense numbers in the latest budget deal. Then we'll close with a discussion with Elena Schneider about her great piece in Politico this week on the battle for the House majority, entitled Panic Time. Before we get started, a reminder to our listeners to subscribe to the Nerdcast, rate us, and write a review. And stay tuned at the end of the show for a shout-out to one of the Nerdcast's biggest fans. Now let's welcome back White House reporter Eliana Johnson into the studio. Hi, Eliana. Been a long time. Good to have you back, though. Thank you. And Nancy, welcome back to you. Nice to have you here. Oh, thanks so much. Let's kick off our first segment today with this data point. 4.6%. The Dow fell 4.6% Monday, amounting to the stock market's biggest decline since August 2011. Since then, the stock market has recovered some of those losses. But let's let Mohamed El Arian, who was a guest on Ben White's Politico Money podcast, explain the stock market's recent fluctuations and what that means in the long term. So we, we've come from a very peculiar phase. In January alone, the S&P was up 7.5%. So if you look at the context, we came very far very rapidly, and we are now having a technical adjustment. Within that, the economy is improving. Nancy, how have tax cuts and jobs report impacted the stock market? So basically what happened is uh, sort of a confluence of things. The economy has been doing really, really well. Uh, you know, the unemployment rate has really dropped to a super healthy level. Uh, the economy is adding a bunch of jobs. And what happened with the tax cut is it sent a bunch of new money into the economy. And it wasn't necessarily like financial stimulus that the economy needed because it was doing so well. And so there's all this like inf infusion of money at the same time that the Federal Reserve is thinking about raising interest rates. And so there's two things that sort of happen um, at this point that are causing this volatility in the stock market. Market. One, a sense that the economy didn't need all this money, and that's raising uh, fears of inflation. And then two, at the same time, the Fed is thinking about raising interest rates, uh, and there's a new Fed chair, so that's a little bit of uncertainty on the policy. And there's a sense that you know if the interest rates rise, it'll make it a bit more difficult for people to borrow money, uh, you know, like to buy houses and things like that. And so people won't have as much access to easy money. And so it's sort of those combined factors of inflation fears, rising interest rates, plus just a new person leading the Federal Reserve that led to a lot of volatility in the stock market. And the people I talked to said, 
you know, look, stock markets, uh, you know, the Dow Jones goes up and down. That's not a big deal. Uh, that happens all the time. The mistake on the part of the White House and specifically the president was a political one. You know, it's the stock market is not something that you can necessarily control. And to make the political mistake or the rhetorical mistake of staking your economic record on the stock market, which is really not the best measurement anyway, is like a political failure on their part. They could have pointed to a bunch of other things to make their case about their economic legacy, uh, things like the low unemployment rate or consumer confidence uh, or the jobs numbers that get added every month. But for some reason, the president pick the stock market. And that was just a bad choice. Interestingly, I was told the other day this fun thing that the president has come to view the stock market as another form of polling and that he's become as obsessed with it as he once was with polling. And sort of that fixation, I think, led to them uh, making this political miscalculation, as some would say. Well, obviously, there's uh, a ton of downside risk to obsessing over the stock market in that way. So, Eliana, how, how much political risk is there to uh, President Trump to have this kind of approach and to consistently tie his fortunes to the uh, Dow? Presidents, without uh, without taking credit for economic for the success of the economy are credited with economic success and they're blamed for economic downturns. I think Trump lived the downsides of going out there and taking credit even though he was nonetheless getting credit for it. Um, and he and uh, he, he lived really – he then uh, – the media had so much to point to when the stock market took a turn for the worse, when he easily could have gone out there and said, look, there are so many factors that go into the economy. But given all all the credit he had taken, he really had no ground to stand on there. Um, when really the truth is so many factors go into this economy looks very similar in terms of uh, the, the growth factors, um, the number of jobs added, um, the amount the economy has grown and so on as it did under Obama, what's really changed is people's feelings about the economy. They're much more optimistic about the economy under Trump. But the president hasn't really taken that sort of clear-headed fact-based ba- fact approach to it. And I think it, it sort of bit him in the ass this week. And given how, how much psychic weight he seems to put on uh, the stock market, do we, do we have a sense of what his personal reaction is? I, I guess what I mean is I'm really curious to know, was, what, uh, was he sitting in his pajamas, rage, you know, eating fried chicken and raging at the television screen? Or Cheeseburgers, were there serious, come on. Cheeseburgers, uh, fried chicken is not his uh, – Oh, I thought that was part of the choice. I thought that was part of the menu. My, my, it my could, bad. you know, actually KFC. Yeah, he may, loves may KFC. Occasionally get in there. Yeah. It is so good. Yeah, I can't I really fault say. him on that. I have to be honest. Yeah. But what, was it that kind of scenario, or, or was there deep concern within the White House and a, a feeling that they needed to get out there and publicize the tax cut message more, or or? Uh, take a different tack on, on, on their stock market messaging? Well, interestingly, the stock market really started to plummet when Trump was in, I think, Ohio this week. Oh, I love the state of Ohio. Giving a tax reform speech. And so it was like late afternoon, you know, he's doing his whole like game show host vibe where he's introducing people that were helped by the tax cut and talking about how great the economy was. When I signed the tax cut six weeks ago, it set off a tidal wave of good news that continues to grow every single day. And meanwhile, uh, you know, 
Fox News, even Fox News cut away from the speech to show the stock market plummeting. Um, and Politico reported that, you know, back on Air Force One, they were watching TV, they were watching Fox News with the stock market news going on. Uh, a funny detail I thought was that Secretary Mnuchin apparently walked to the back of Air Force One and accidentally ran into the reporters who sit back there and then quickly ran away because he didn't want to field any questions about uh, about that since he's technically in charge of the, uh, the health of the economy as uh, Trump's cabinet member. But I think, uh, you know, the reaction in the White House was uh, a little bit muted and Sarah Huckabee Sanders issued this pretty terse statement to try to talk about it and try to say that the fundamentals of the economy are still good. That is true. That is absolutely true. It's just that the White House had held up the stock market as their main measurement, which they shouldn't have done. And they really undercut themselves on talking about sort of all the broader things that they could have pointed to. I thought there was a really important moment this week uh, in, in it was revealed through a Quinnipiac poll, which I, I'm sure you guys saw, which showed uh, that a majority of people now approve of uh, Trump's handling of the economy. It showed that you know his numbers are climbing gradually. He's still underwater in terms of general approval, but they're climbing. And so much of his success, you can see the trajectory here, so much of his success is going to be tied to the economy. And I thought what was most important, though, was for the first time since he's been president, the poll showed and, uh, and the poll has been tracking this almost monthly since he was inaugurated. For the first time, voters said that uh, they believe President Trump is responsible for the economy, not Barack Obama anymore. So that's the change. This was the first time ever. How important is that, the idea that people now – uh, put the onus of, of of guiding the economy on President Trump. I think it's huge, and I think that they're going to stake a lot of the uh, rhetoric surrounding the midterms on, you know, maybe not aligning people who are up uh, in close races with Trump, but definitely people in close races with the state of the economy. Um, and I think the question is, you know, can it sort of hold? Um, and can these sort of good fundamentals continue? But I think that, you know, Democrats, Democrats I talked to, particularly after the tax package was uh, passed, were at a little bit of a loss as to how to message against this. I mean, it puts the Democrats in a bit of a tough space because originally they tried to talk about how, you know, these tax cuts potentially would ultimately lead to cuts in Medicare and Medicaid because of the long-term deficit situation. I don't feel like that messaging has really st- uh, stuck. And so it gives Trump, um, you know, a presuming they can not just stake his economic legacy on the stock market, presuming they can broaden that message. I think it gives Trump a huge advantage uh, for the next three years. And also it gives Republicans a big advantage heading into the midterms. Well, we'll keep a close eye on the stock market's volatility. But for now, let's move to segment two. You and Trump, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> Our second data point today is actually three numbers. Ready? 241, 63, 29. That's the number of horses, airplanes, and helicopters, respectively, that were included in France's 2017 Bastille Day Parade, the military parade that captured President Trump's imagination. This week, it's been reported that the president has asked the Pentagon for a similar parade to showcase the American military. Let's welcome Politico Pro defense reporter Connor O'Brien into the studio for his Nerdcast debut. Welcome, Connor. Thanks for having me. Connor, tell us about the meeting that sparked this military parade buzz. As the Washington Post reported Tuesday evening, President Trump 
had a meeting in what's called the tank in the Pentagon, uh, the big the big conference room uh, with the top military brass and uh, Defense Secretary Jim Mattis, and he brought up this idea of wanting to do a large display of of military prowess, a big military parade. The thing that makes this notable is that very large displays of of military might are, are kind of unusual nowadays in the United States. The last really big military parade that that the United States had was in 1991 after a very decisive, very quick victory in the Gulf War. Um, there, there was a parade that I believe went down Constitution Avenue. Uh, it involved tanks. It involved, uh, you know, Bradley fighting vehicles, big military equipment, and came at a cost of $12 million. So there's also that element here that that it's going to cost money. And it's obviously received some criticism since then, uh, particularly from Democrats who argue that this is not really what the United States does. This is kind of more what, say, authoritarian regimes like Russia, China, North Korea do, you know, show their military might regularly on the streets. Eliana, it kind of feels to me like it, it reflects a little too much about Trump's ego and uh, his uh, obsession with showmanship. I'm not sure if it's his ego, but he certainly uh, – likes showmanship and he likes made for TV moments and I think he he went to France and complimented them on their military parade I think he loved the look of it and he essentially said your your parade it's not going to be bigger than our parade so in that sense I think there's uh there's a certain sense of ego and he wants uh in in terms of I think his made make America great again uh, ethos. He wants to make uh, America's parades great again, our military parades great again. When he when he sees other countries uh, having parades, he doesn't want that want to be outdone. I don't know. Maybe it's me, but I, I would take our record in uh, wars over France's uh, ability to put on a good show. Uh, Connor, can you talk a little bit about the Pentagon's reaction to the parade request? How is this being received uh, over at the Pentagon? Well, it's been. I think fairly muted, um, and I think part of that is that um, the Pentagon has been careful amid all of Trump's, you know, the, the tweets, everything like that, to kind of stay out of stay out of it, kind of be above the fray as to the extent that they can. Um, you know, Defense Secretary Mattis briefed reporters at the White House yesterday, and uh, you know, he did say that they were looking at it. He said they're putting together some options. Uh, that they're aware of the president's affection and respect for the military. And that's kind of the that's kind of the the thing that you've heard a lot from the Pentagon during the Trump administration is they've tried to the extent that they can to stay above that fray. And then they're looking at it. Is that yeah, they're, they're looking it off? at it. Um, not necessarily, but I think there's. I think I think it's it was left very open ended. What is uh, the president's relationship with uh, Mattis like? I mean, is it? You know, strained. Can somebody put that in some context for me? What's been so interesting to me is that on the substance, Jim Mattis and Rex Tillerson agree on virtually everything, but Trump dislikes the one and really likes the other. And I think that speaks to a certain political savvy that Mattis has in that he's he understands the president's personality and he's able really to play to him. And I think that's why he's been successful in the administration. It helps also, of course, that he's a general. But Tillerson has been successful in business, which is something that Trump respects too. And I've been told essentially that Mattis, though he his instincts are hawkish, his policy instincts are hawkish, and he's uh, talked the president down from wanting to 
uh, strike various countries, strike uh, Iranian speedboats and uh, and th- things like that. He talks a very hawkish game and talks about you know bombing the shit out of this and 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 that which Trump really likes. So he's able to play to the president's uh, predilections in various ways, um, which gives him a lot of influence with Trump. I think what's interesting about the whole parade debate, just to pull back a little bit, is that. A lot of people in Washington, I feel like, thought, oh, this is a crazy idea. You know, Trump just wants to have a parade because he's always been obsessed with the generals and sort of the showmanship of the military. And people in Washington are raising questions about the amount of money it will cost to bring back tanks and sort of set all this up and and the chaos that it will wreck on the city to close down streets and have all this there. But it's another instance in the Trump presidency of like what is important to Washington plays totally differently outside of Washington and also for a TV audience. And I I sort of will – I'll be interested to see if the military parade happens. Like it could be a huge political hit for Trump. You know, it would be on TV. All the TV networks would carry it. You know, he could bill it as something that uh, shows force. He could bill it as a veterans thing. I mean it depends on sort of how they cast it. But I wouldn't discount it as a potentially political perilous idea because I feel like Trump has been quite good at manipulating imagery to his own gain. Right. And, it, and I do smell a trap for Democrats here you, because you know uh, what their predilection is going to be in terms of their response and uh, it's going to be awfully hard for them to dial it back a little bit. Uh, but what about on, on the right? I mean, are there no budget hawks talking about the financial implications of this? I mean, this is, we're talking about a lot of money. I mean, the budget hawks died as as far as I'm concerned when Trump was elected. I mean, they raised a little bit of noise right before the tax package was passed, but ultimately passed a $1.5 trillion tax package that has the potential to blow a huge hole in the deficit uh, you know, over the next decade or so, and nobody seems that concerned about it. I mean, I think the Republicans' uh, you know, religion on the deficit and government spending has basically been lost in this presidency. I think Trump has changed the party in that sense in that we're not hearing those voices as loudly as we would. There are still budget hawks in the party. They're just not getting as much oxygen as they were in the Obama years because Trump doesn't care about debt and deficits. Well, we do have to mention that congressional leaders reached a two-year budget deal on Wednesday, a deal that's expected to increase uh, defense spending and domestic spending by roughly $300 billion over two years. Uh, Connor, what, what's included in this $300 billion? Is it what, what, what are the Pentagon spending priorities? Sure. So the specifics will be hammered out by Congress once this deal passes, which, by the way, is not a done deal yet. So what happens here is – uh, this year for defense, it'll go up by about eighty billion dollars, eighty-five billion next year, uh, and this is great news for defense hawks on Capitol Hill. It's great news for the Pentagon. Uh, the Pentagon has said that what Congress has been doing for the last uh, several months or so, and including last year, which is just passed temporary spending bills that take care of the Pentagon and the rest of the government for a month at a time or so. Uh, basically crippling military readiness. It hurts training. It hurts maintenance. uh, It grounds planes. In addition to that, they have longer-term goals. Uh, You might have seen a couple weeks ago a national defense strategy, which is just a broad outline of our military strategy, was released by Secretary Mattis. And it focuses on what's called the great power conflict, um, basically shifting from fighting terrorism as a priority to competing with Russia and China. And that's going to cost money if you're going to keep a military edge versus 
those two countries. Um, the Pentagon is also committed to overhauling the nuclear arsenal, which is projected to cost about $1.2 trillion over the next 30 years. So uh, you need a higher level of funding if you're going to do those things, if you're going to do what President Trump wants to do, which is build up the military, a larger navy, a larger army. But you know, the, this is really, I think, more so been driven by defense hawks on Capitol Hill who've been pushing for this and who were very critical of President Obama uh, at the tail end of his administration for not really requesting enough for uh, for defense and who kind of, you know, saw President Trump's victory as a chance to increase defense spending to build up the military and, you know, start to reclaim that um, military readiness that they – that they argued had been lost over the last five years or so, and uh, and you know meet the meet the threats that are out there, which you know they, they've said are most complex since World War II. Well, uh, Connor, Nancy, Eliana, thank you so much for coming in and giving us the uh, rundown on the parade. I look forward to seeing you there if this happens. <laughs> yeah, I'll be in the front row. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Our third data point today is forty, or more precisely slightly more than 40. That's how many House Republican incumbents were outraised in the final quarter of 2017 by their Democratic opponents. Here to talk today about this is Campaign Pro reporter Elena Schneider. Hey, Elena. Hey, how's it going? Doing well. I loved your story this week, the idea that uh, Republicans need to be a little nervous about this latest round of uh, fundraising reports from the FEC. Why was it a big deal? So these numbers are really important because they tell us where Republicans and Democrats are in these races. It gives us some real evidence for it. So we found that 40 and slightly more House Republicans were outraised by their Democratic challengers, some by two or three of those challengers. And that's really important because traditionally incumbents have huge advantages in fundraising. They are chairing committees in which people want to have influence. But I think it's also a really big deal because incumbents have all these advantages that enable them to raise a gazillion dollars. And those are advantages that challengers never have. Like if you have a, a prominent committee post, lobbyists want to pour money into your coffers. You know, you have so many advantages. So the fact that so many incumbents would be outraged raised, uh, I think should be pretty scary to uh, Republicans. Now, w- were there any trends among those 40? Uh, any, any, any trend lines that you would note? A lot of these Republicans who are first timers who are trying to raise money really struggled this cycle with uh, with gridlock of going to their donors and saying, you know, hey, I need your help. And those donors saying to them, well, you're not getting anything done in Congress. And so Republicans keep telling me that they feel um, uh, excited for Q1. So this first quarter of 2018, because they'll finally have an answer to that, which is tax reform. And they point to that as evidence of why they're going to really bounce back here. Whether or not that happens is obviously still still remains to be seen. To me, it seems like there's two conflicting data points that will come out of uh, this week. Number one is the the financial uh, fundraising advantage that, that we spoke about here. But the conflicting point is the polling that has now come out surrounding the uh, generic ballot uh, tests between Democrat and uh, Democratic and Republican candidates. Republicans are ticking up in their numbers when, ba- you know, in, in this so-called generic ballot, you know, uh, an unnamed Democrat or an unnamed Republican against uh, the incumbent. So Republican numbers are getting slightly better. The president's numbers are ticking up slightly. Um, so w- what are we to take from, from those two conflicting points? I mean, where do things stand in the battle for the House majority? Well, so the polling is a much uh, more 
of-the-moment snapshot that tells us exactly where the electorate is right in this moment. Financial data is is on a lag because we're looking at how the mood of the these donors, the electorate was in 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 the fall and in in over the holidays, which is not necessarily as as up to date. I do think though that it shows that the, that we're heading for a real showdown, that there are huge numbers of really well-funded, credible Democratic challengers who are going to spend enormous sums of money in these races to take out these Republicans. And at the same time, Republicans are seeing a little bit of a bounce, as is the president, in, in good economic trends that we've seen, um, even with the stock market going up and down, that overall still companies are coming out and saying that they're going to give out bonuses. So there's positive economic stories to be told about this tax reform bill. And when those two things, um, when when those two uh, uh, elements, you know, come to a showdown here, that's really evidence for for a really exciting cycle. Okay, so let's drill down a little bit and say you want to say you want to drop some knowledge on that annoying friend that always wants to talk politics, never wants to talk about anything but politics. Let's, give me a, a, a race, a really interesting house race that's revealing in one way or another about the election cycle at this point. Well, not to uh, to lean too much on what's our neighboring district here, but I think the Virginia 10 district, which is Barbara Comstock's seat, it's just across the river from where we are in uh, northern Virginia. There are half a dozen Democrats, all incredibly well-respected, strong resumes, several members of former um, Obama's administration, uh, people who can self-fund their their races. They're all jockeying to take on Barbara Comstock because her district, which we saw in the, the uh, 2017 legislative races there, turned pretty hardcore blue in a reaction to Donald Trump. This is a very suburban district, well, you know, affluent, well-educated. And what what is what we're going to watch here is a couple of different things. So the Democratic primary is going to be fascinating, and it, it is playing out in all kinds of different Democratic primaries across the country, in Orange County, in suburban Illinois, and, and suburban Chicago, in which all these well-funded, credible candidates are going to start bashing each other and start either tacking further to the left. They're going to start saying they're not going to support leadership. They're going to try and stand out in different ways. When you so, say leadership, they're saying they're not going to support Nancy Pelosi. Potentially. If they get elected. Potentially. Right? As a way to stand out, as a way to make it a wedge issue. So that's going to be a really fascinating primary that's going to give us a window into how all of these primaries are playing out because they're playing to, you know, they're trying to get constituencies. They're trying to get attention. And then on the, once whoever moves on to the general election, Barbara Comstock's race is one where she's a very, you know, she's been in Congress for a number of cycles. She's very battle tested. She's always on the front lines of these sorts of races because she represents a suburban district that tends to lean a little more Democratic. And uh, but she's one who's been able to, you know, strike out on her own in a lot of ways. She has she, you know, even made the news this week by by asking Trump to not call for a government shutdown. And it's stood up to him at the White House. She's also Which is pretty savvy because there's so many federal workers in her district. Exactly. So she knows how to create a brand that is separate from the president. And that's going to be really powerful in a midterm election. So we'll we'll see both a, a really contested, really exciting Democratic primary and then followed up by a really intense general election in which we've got a battle-tested incumbent who's going to face off against a Democrat who's going to have a lot of wind at their back. Okay. So Virginia 10, the suburban slash exurban uh, Comstock district. How about – give us another one. What's number two? of the more interesting districts that you're covering. So another one to watch is uh, Matt Cartwright in Pennsylvania. So there are not a lot of, uh, we often talk about the the districts that Hillary Clinton won that are held by Republicans, which are 23 of them right now, um, that Democrats are obviously hoping to flip. Those are the sorts of suburban seats like Comstock seat. 
But another trend to really pay attention to are these seats that Trump won that Democrats hold. There are not as many of them, but they're in the upper Midwest. They're in places like Pennsylvania. Matt Cartwright is sitting on top of one right now. It's a slice of eastern eastern Pennsylvania, traditional sort of labor support. He's a pretty you know middle-of-the-road conservative Democrat, and he barely won his race, and Trump won it by double digits, uh, and I think actually by almost 20 points. So that's one where... Democrats are going to have to figure out a way to run in Trump's uh, run against Trump's Republican Party amongst constituents who maybe really liked what he was selling. So he, Cartwright's somebody who's going to have to decide whether or not he's going to stake out against Nancy Pelosi. He hasn't yet, but that's another one to watch. And how is he going to handle uh, a, a district that, in a lot of ways, is maybe moving away from him? I'll throw a little trivia at you here. That district is the first congressional race I ever covered in my career. Is it really? It was his predecessor, uh, Tim Holden. And I learned the most important thing about reporting on congressional races that when you get out there and you spend some time far away from Washington on the campaign trail, uh, as I'm sure you've learned, you realize that people don't talk about the things that we talk about here at Definitely all. Definitely not. Uh, and they don't talk about politics at all. W- what I was amazed at was how many people in that district only wanted to talk about to the incumbent at the time about his grandfather, who was a professional baseball player. And that's all they ever talked about. No one asked about Social Security or Medicare or anything. One of the biggest stories in recent weeks about the House is the, the no- large number of retirements. You see people retiring in scandal or they're retiring because they've had too much or you know, there's lots of different re- – or they're running for other office. Are we going to see more retirements or are we about done? It's now early February. Where are we? So there are a few more that might trickle in that uh, that may not determine the control of the House, but there's still possible that a few more will trickle in. But the, the party committees themselves, though, they're, they're exerting a lot of pressure on members to make their decisions now, right? They've been exerting pressure as of this summer, this past summer. Um, for, for the party committees, it's so important for members to express their intentions or not, at least privately, so that they can then prepare and go into these into these districts and help find and cultivate some candidates who are going to be well-suited to run and replace them. Because open seats are are just much more vulnerable for somebody to come in and flip because you no longer have those advantages that we talked about at the top with incumbency, the ability to fundraise, some name ID, some brand built into the district. Um, and it would be a little shocking if there was another battleground seat that came up for grabs because it is so late in the cycle. We're already in the midst of filing deadlines. Uh, but it is still possible that maybe one of these safer Republicans or safer Democrats decide they want to call it quits. Well, one of these late-breaking districts uh, is the one I grew up in, which is Pennsylvania 7th, where uh, Congressman Meehan was involved in a little bit of a, a scandal recently and announced he wouldn't run for uh, re-election. What is going to happen in that district? I don't think we know yet what's going to happen in the entire state of Pennsylvania at this point. Uh, so Pennsylvania, uh, not only do we have a couple, number of retirements, Meehan, also Charlie Dent, but we've also got a contested House map that is going through all kinds of litigation right now in dealing with uh, a Supreme Court, a state Supreme Court decision telling them to redraw the maps before 2018. And uh, we just found out this week that the U.S. Supreme Court is not going to intervene here. So basically, the state Supreme Court decision stands. They need to redraw the maps. They haven't drawn them yet. Sort of unclear how that might happen. Why so, does all this matter? Like, it seems like mumbo jumbo. Like, why does it matter like that they have to redraw them? They have to redraw the maps because it was ruled in the state Supreme Court that they were uh, unfairly packing um, or drawing these lines based on partisanship. No, but I mean like big picture. Who wins and who loses? Like how does it affect the 2018 midterm election? So Republicans hold about two-thirds of the delegation. Pennsylvania is a swing state. If these – 
lines are drawn, as Democrats would argue, in a more fair way, Democrats have a chance of picking up anywhere from two to three to four to five potentially seats to even out that delegation, which matters in a huge way if Democrats want to retake the House in which they need to win back 24 seats. Oh, wow. That's that's a lot of seats. Okay. So Pennsylvania is going to be critical to determining the House majority in November. If you had to say one other state, if I were to nail you to it right now, what's, what's another critical state to determining control of the House? California. Why? California and Southern California has shifted like no other part of this country against Trump and against Republicans. It's been a shift that we've seen moving in that direction for for a while, but Trump accelerated it to a degree nobody was really anticipating. So there are places, Mimi Walters, who represents Irvine, um, Irvine, California, uh, Dana Rohrabacher, uh, Steve Knight. These are all members who have been sort of on the cusp of being in danger, uh, but maybe haven't really had serious threats or haven't had a ton of money spent against them. They are now in the fights of their lives. Ed Royce, Daryl Issa chose to retire as opposed to trying to run for re-election in this in this environment. So the, there's at least five or six, if not seven or eight seats in California that Democrats have a real shot at taking, which could be critical to them retaking control of the House. And what's amazing is that so much of this is happening in, in Orange County, which was once you know referred to by Ronald Reagan as the place that good Republicans go to die and, and a place that used to be so conservative in the 60s that national magazines would send these East Coast correspondents would parachute in to Orange County and write these stories about how exotic this place was because it was so conservative. It's kind of hilarious if you read back at some of that stuff. Uh, in, in any case, Elena, thank you so much for coming by and explaining this. Uh, I hope you come and do this and explain the sort of house landscape for us again. Definitely. Thanks for having me. And one last thing. We got a great email this week. A Nerdcast fan wondered if we would give him a mention on Nerdcast if he left a review on Apple Podcasts. So, yes, Daniel Gilbert of Dundee, Scotland. Yes, Scotland. We will give you a mention. So, everyone, please be like Daniel and leave us a review. Tell us how we're doing. It helps new people find the show. And if you do, maybe we'll give you a shout out next week. And before we close, a big thank you to all our listeners, our producers, Dave Shaw, Bridget Mulcahy, and Michaela Rodriguez. Our researcher is Zach Montalaro, and our illustrator is Bill Cookman. We'll talk to you next week.